Okay, uh, I'm uh, Chayton Bat, and I'm director uh, of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE. And on this uh, cold evening, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to you uh, to this event hosted by the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. And it's on European democracies and human rights. And I'd uh, like to very much thank you for coming. Now, as you may know, tomorrow is United Nations Human Rights Day. And the event today is part of a series of talks by distinguished international figures that we organize each year to mark Human Rights Day. And the theme of this evening's talk represents an area of considerable interest to those concerned about human rights protection in Europe. In recent years, we've seen a far closer convergence, a political convergence, between, for example, issues about migration, issues of security and counterterrorism, and the imagined cohesion of nations, and indeed in the xenophobic imagination of uh, European identity itself. And the great powers and apparatuses that we see, for example, in the UK, relating to coercive detention, extended periods of detention without charge, and secret tribunals. And in terms of migration, we see a remarkable emphasis being placed on speed and targets. Uh, these are almost like performance indicators for the speedy and forcible removal of migrants seekers of sanctuary, and indeed small and powerless populations like the Roma. And the appalling conditions of many detention camps uh, for migrants, not just those uh, within several European countries, but those camps that are outside the borders, almost like uh, a terrible necklace around Europe, illustrate starkly some of the transformations that we're seeing. And if this and a broader political failure represent some of the contexts of human rights in Europe, then I'm greatly honored and delighted to be able to introduce to you one of the key international figures addressing these and related issues. Thomas Hammerberg is Commissioner for Human Rights for the Council of Europe, and he was elected as Commissioner in 2005 by the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly. And prior to this, uh, he spent several decades working on the advancement of human rights in Europe and worldwide. He held several key posts, including Secretary General of the Stockholm-based Olaf Palme International Center, and he was the Ambassador of the Swedish Government on Humanitarian Affairs, and the Secretary General of Save the Children in Sweden, and he was also Secretary General of Amnesty International. Mr. Hammerberg has held several special positions. In 2001-3, he served as Regional Advisor for Europe, Central Asia, and the Caucasus, for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And for several years, he was the Swedish Prime Minister's personal representative for the UN Special Session on Children, as, as well as the convener for the Aspen Institute's Roundtables on Human Rights and Peace Missions. Between 1996 and 2000, he was Kofi Annan's appointed representative for human rights in Cambodia. And he's also participated in the refugee working group of the multilateral Middle East peace process. Mr. Hammerberg has published widely on various human rights issues, particularly children's rights, refugee policy, minority issues, xenophobia, Roma rights, as well as international affairs and security. And he's very well known for his presentations and lectures on human rights at various governmental and academic institutions. His presentation this evening is titled European Democracies and Human Rights from Present Failures to Future Protection. 
and the presentation will be followed uh, with time for your questions. So um, I just have to remind you that Mr. Hammerberg is Swedish and he has specifically requested no questions on WikiLeaks, please. <laughs> <laughs> so may I ask you to extend your warm welcome to Mr. Thomas Hammerberg. You are allowed to ask about WikiLeaks as well. <laughs> Thank you. Once when I was at a meeting with uh, young people's children actually, and uh, the convener of the meeting gave the same long list of uh, past sins. Before I said time to start, one child asked for the floor immediately and asked, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> Which I think was a, a good reflection. Um, there is a problem with uh, us human rights uh, activists that we tend to focus on problems rather than solutions and this may be the case now as well. We tend to look at the half empty part of the glass rather than the half full. Uh, but I will try to be constructive towards the end with some suggestions about what ought to be done in order to address the problems which will be, I will try to define. One way of seeing what is the status of human rights in Europe today would be to go into the website of the European Court for Human Rights in Strasbourg, the Strasbourg Court. And you would see there that the number and also the nature of the applications is, is quite revealing. There are now more than 50,000 cases which have come already during this year, 50,000 cases this year to uh, the Strasbourg Court. And of course this is because people who apply feel that they couldn't achieve justice at home. They felt that they had to go to a, um, the European Court. And uh, if you look at the judgments also, many of the judgments have actually, of course the, the majority of the cases are not really dealt with by the court because they, the nature of the applications don't fulfill the formal requirements. For instance, that they haven't gone through the the domestic uh, the various stages in the judicial process. But when it comes to the cases which the court has taken up, uh, in, in four out of five cases they find some violations of the European Convention for Human Rights. And there are certain types of human rights violations which come across very often. One is the non-execution of domestic sentences, domestic uh, court decisions. Another one is the very lengthy procedures before a decision is taken, if it's ever taken in the court. Another one deals with the police brutality. There are quite a, a number of cases in Strasbourg dealing with police brutality in quite a number of countries. Um, and then there are many cases relating to bad prison conditions and many of them amounting to violations of Article 3 in the Convention, the one about torture and, and ill-treatment. So uh, only looking at the court procedures and the way the court has dealt with, with applications by citizens of European countries, you get the picture that there are still problems when it comes to human rights in Europe. In my own work, I travel quite a lot to various countries, I have uh, come to the conclusion that there are systemic problems when it comes to basic human rights, in fact, all over Europe. And I've concluded 
that there are really no grounds for complacency when it comes to human rights in, in Europe. One of the crisis periods that uh, we have gone through and probably have not totally left behind us is the European response to the American response to 9-11 and the, the nervousness which spread also in Europe when it comes to how to deal with the threat of, of terrorism. And uh, there, there are still serious problems also in Europe. We uh, notice that the problems that have been taken up by human rights activists, including uh, Council of Europe, when it comes to secret places of detention, have not been really investigated in, in Europe. We have repeatedly asked the authorities in Romania, Poland, and Lithuania to come up with uh, the facts about what happened in the cooperation with the uh, United States security agencies when it comes to secret detention of, of suspects for terrorist crimes or, or, or planning terrorist crimes. Uh, and there is a, a problem there. We have tried to highlight the cooperation between the security agencies in Europe with the, uh, the CIA and the other branches of the security apparatus in the United States. And we still have problems when it comes to that. One case that uh, we have not got a satisfactory answer uh, about is uh, in, in, in Sweden, where two Egyptians were handed over to CIA at an airport uh, outside Stockholm, uh, ill-treated already at the airport by the security agents, brought to, to uh, Egypt, and there uh, in, uh, interrogated uh, with uh, illegal methods and then uh, captured there. One was released after some time but uh, forbidden to leave the country. The other one is still in, in prison in, in Egypt. And the Swedish government has not been able to give the facts about this case and in fact when the case come up, came up in the, in the parliament, it came up twice uh, the government even uh, did not inform the parliamentarians that those two, those two um, Egyptians had been handed over to CIA. They just said they had been deported to, to, to Egypt. And, and the background to this case has never been uh, revealed by the Swedish authorities. One consequence of the 9-11 um, and the, the way that 9-11 uh, problems were handled by the European governments was an increase of Islamophobia in Europe. And I would say that one of the, the key human rights problems today is the spread of Islamophobia and prejudices against Muslims. We have had unfortunate discussions about uh, mosques and minarets in many cities and we had of course the uh, referendum in Switzerland about the the, the minarets, uh, whether it would be possible in Switzerland to build more than the four already built minarets or not. Uh, in many cities in Europe today there is a discussion going on on whether a mosque could be built or not. We have had un unfortunate discussions about the wearing of niqabs uh, or burqas in several countries and uh, a ban on uh, having that kind of dress has been adopted in, in Belgium and uh, also in France. Uh, and I think there's discussions going on about further prohibitions against 
that dress in, in other countries in, in Europe. When it comes to uh, xenophobia, there's also a problem of the spread of xenophobia in European countries today. And the two groups which are most often targeted there are the Roma and migrants in general. Uh, when it comes to the Roma, uh, there was um, an upsurge of interest into the situation of the Roma after what happened in France in uh, July and August, where the French government decided to, when they started what they called a war on crime, to target very much the Roma from Romania and Bulgaria. More than 1,000 uh, Roma from these countries were apprehended and sent back to those countries. Uh, and there was no real possibility for them to, to claim uh, that they had the right to stay, in spite of the fact that they were members of the, of the European Union and thereby had the right to stay in another EU country at least for three months. Many of those who were sent back had only been there for a couple of weeks and not spent the, the, the three, the three uh, uh, months there. I have visited many countries uh, in Europe by now and uh, looked into the situation of the Roma and I would say that uh, it's an, a desperate situation. The misery is almost beyond description. Uh, they are behind the rest of the population when it comes to housing. They live in many cases in, in, in <coughs> pure slum. They are behind when it comes to employment. Most of the adults have no, no work. They are behind when it comes to schooling. We estimate that about half of the Roma children in school age are not in school today. They are behind when it comes to health care. Uh, the, the expected life length of a Roma today is about 10 years shorter than for the rest of the population. And they are, uh, of course, very much underrepresented in the political discussion and when it comes to political assemblies. They are an underclass in Europe and they are subject to uh, racism and uh, are very badly speaking about by also leading politicians. There is an anti-Roma, anti-Ziganism which is widespread in, in Europe today and which is part of the problem, etc. And uh, this will, of course, be one of the major priorities for uh, the Council of Europe, myself, and for those who work for respect for everyone when it comes to, to human rights on, on our continent. Migration. Um, the European Union is trying to harmonize the policies when it comes to migration, including uh, how to treat asylum seekers. There is a, a trend towards a more sharp and, and restrictive policy. Uh, there is a tendency towards uh, detention of migrants, both on arrival while uh, uh, going through an asylum procedure, but also before people are sent back to their home countries after negative decisions. Uh, the EU has recommended in one of its uh, directives the member states to uh, not keep people before deportation home more than six plus six plus six months, 18 months. But of course this is a very long period to be detained without having committed a crime. But there, there is also uh, a move in several countries to begin to see that the 
the, the entry into a country without permit and the stay in the country sans papier without uh, a permit should be criminalized. Italy is one of the countries where uh, there are quite uh, strict sentences against uh, those who uh, stay in the country without permit or those who uh, sublet an apartment to uh, people who, who, who have no permit to, to stay in the country. So there is a, a trend towards <coughs> criminalization in, in Europe when it comes to migration. The asylum process is also a problem. Uh, the procedures are very complicated nowadays. There is a trend uh, towards uh, quick procedures which give little room for um, people with, with problems to uh, express themselves, uh, little room for appeals when the first negative decision is taken, little room for the possibility to seek legal advice, and little room for uh, helping with translations because, of course, there are in many cases a language uh, problem. It is clear that most of the European countries today want to move people back to their home countries and not welcome them into the European uh, community. We have that tendency in spite of the fact that uh, our continent is aging and in fact would need to have more people coming in order to protect our welfare in the future. That argument is very seldom made today by leading politicians. Also very few politicians stand up and remind ourselves about what happened when we were uh, a very poor continent and people wanted to go to across the Atlantic to find a future there and in, in fact were in most cases welcome there and started a new life there which was for the benefit of themselves but also for the people who stayed uh, here in, in Europe and could benefit from the future that was created over there. That, that parallel is not made in the, in the discussion today. And unfortunately, we have a situation where uh, extreme right-wing groups are, have, they are having a response to their arguments against Muslims, against Roma, and against migration and migrants uh, today in Europe. And one of the, the key problems, in my opinion, is that the established democratic parties are not forcefully standing up and taking the debate with those extremist groups. Uh, maybe U United Kingdom is an exception where the British National Party did not manage to, to uh, elect, uh, to get someone inside to the parliament here in the last election, but in many other countries uh, the extreme right groups are coming into the parliaments. Um, Sweden is one exam example, Hungary is another example, Netherlands is, is a third example. And, and we fear that there is a risk that those groups not only enter the elected parliamentary assembly but also begin to have an influence on the government policy. We have seen that in, in Denmark, for instance, now for, for several years. And it has, in spite of the fact that that party has less than 15% support, has had an impact on the government policy and that has had an impact on the migration policy and that has an impact on, on human rights in general in that, in that country. Probably these tendencies of xenophobia and uh, restrictive policy when it comes to migration, the negative feelings about Muslims, negative feelings about the Roma has been further um, developed through the economic crisis. 
I think the economic crisis has had already very negative effects when it comes to those atmospheres uh, created. But not only that, uh, the economic crisis has also led to uh, severe problems when it comes to what we call social rights. And uh, there is no doubt that the austerity budgets now being presented in country after country in Europe has negative effects on the most vulnerable groups in our societies. Even if there are some measures have been taken in order to protect them, it's clear that they are the ones who carry the, the most heavy burden and they are people with very little margin to, uh, to cut further their standard of, of, of living. And I'm, I'm afraid that we are coming into a period now when there will be a need to more forcefully defend social rights in, in our societies. And sadly we have still a discussion in some countries that social rights are not seen as full human rights, sort of a second level, second rank, rank uh, human rights. And that's of course something that uh, needs to be discussed in, in some depth. It's clear to us that there is such a clear link between civil and political rights and economic and social rights. They go together as, as have been proven by uh, many concrete situations. What I've said so far, I think, directs the attention to basic attitudes which affect uh, the human rights thinking. Uh, my conclusion after four and a half years now as a commissioner and seeing the development after the 11 the 11 September 2001 events and this uh, war on terror and the effect that had on our societies and the economic crisis and the effect that has had is that we need a stronger political backing for the uh, human rights concerns that we have and the basic principles for uh, human rights. Uh, it's sometimes said that if the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the European Convention for Human Rights were proposed today, probably it would be difficult to get a majority to support those, those uh, uh, treaties and, 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 and the declaration. And that's probably true. I think what we are faced with now is that the idealism which was there after the Second World War, which underpinned the whole notion of human rights, has been weakened. And when governments now are con uh, confronted with security or economic interest, uh, they tend to see human rights more as just idealism or even obstacles. Uh, and thereby, I, I think we have had a change in the discourse about human rights um, and the, the absolute nature of human rights, which we have found so important, um, has been undermined. I think one symptom of that is that we have been asked to argue that respect for human rights should also be effective when it comes to other interests. For instance, when it comes to terrorism, we have to prove that respect for human rights and legality of the actions taken is more effective than the methods which were used uh, immediately after the, the terrorist attack in 2001. That legality of measures are more effective than otherwise. 
The same goes for uh, economic and social rights. We have been asked to, uh, we are pushed to prove that equality and the sense of equality in society is uh, positive for the economic growth. I think that type of arguments could be made, but earlier we didn't have to argue on the effectiveness of our uh, concerns in relation to other ambitions in society. We could just argue that these standards have been agreed and would stand above other political interests and concerns in society. So the discourse has, to some extent, changed. I think one other symptom of the change discourse is uh, how human rights have lost some of the importance in, in foreign policies of not least European governments. And I think we can see one example of that now when it comes to China, that uh, the possibilities of continued trade with China, uh, business investments are more important than standing up for some basic principles when it comes to, to human rights. And I think uh, the uh, reaction, not least after the decision in October in Oslo about the Nobel Peace Prize, has demonstrated that there is a, a real problem there. And hopefully tomorrow there will be many who are present in Oslo during that ceremony in order to demonstrate that uh, uh, we, we did not uh, back down because of the strong reaction in Beijing when it comes to this uh, decision by the Nobel Prize Committee. I think what, what I've tried to talk about here is um, the, the basic attitudes and the need to defend these, uh, the values which are behind the attitudes that we have promoted before, respect for others including minorities and foreigners, sense of importance of equality and non-discrimination in our societies, support for the fundamental principles of justice, such as equality before the law and the presumption of innocence. All those, um, I think, have been under some threat during the recent years also in Europe. I, th I think there is uh, a tendency in the political discourse now to see uh, voters as less informed, single-minded and sometimes even reactionary. It's uh, obvious that some of the politicians when they feel that their standing, their popularity in the public is going down, that they tend to uh, appeal to <coughs> Uh, more primitive feelings among the population. I think what happened in France in uh, July and August was an example of that, that problem. And uh, I hope that uh, we could have a discussion where politicians are, are challenged to take a more clear position when it comes to defending uh, human rights. The st strikingly one gets the feeling that the peaceful, affluent Europe appears to be insecure, to feel insecure. Uh, perhaps the high 
unemployment today and the accelerating movement to larger population centers contribute to this, but I'm not sure that this could really explain why extremist political groups manage to recruit more and more sympathizers in several countries today. I think it's urgent to, to try to analyze what these tendencies actually uh, depend on. And I think it's urgent to try to analyze why we appear to lack a political leadership in Europe today on these very central issues. I also feel that there is a tendency now to begin to see, or to, already to see uh, the voters, the people at large, more as consumers than uh, participating citizens. At the same time, we notice that service surveys have shown that the trust in politicians among the population at large is going down and seems to be decreasing even further. A gap is developing between uh, those who take the decisions and, and people at large. And the communication today between the elected politicians, those in position of power, and the broader population, that dialogue seems not to be a dialogue any longer. The communication goes usually via the media. The politicians send signals via the media and try to read the response, but a real dialogue is not going on. A couple of words about the media. Uh, I, of course, everyone working with human rights draw the conclusion that media, media are absolutely central today when it comes to affecting attitudes uh, among people, including those who decide. Uh, probably the, uh, the bloggers uh, have uh, changed the, the situation there somewhat but it's clear that the traditional mass media still dominate very much the debate in, 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 in the European countries. And of course there is sometimes a problem there when it comes to the quality and ethics of, of journalism. I will come back to that a bit later. An important discussion in this context uh, is uh, the problem of access to information. Um, we have today uh, a situation where the authorities collect very detailed uh, information about all the citizens. They know a lot about us, but the people at large have rather little knowledge about uh, the background to decisions being taken. Um, and there's, there's a, a growing gap there, and of course that's where the discussion about WikiLeaks now will be uh, quite, quite, quite interesting. So I've tried to uh, give some personal reflections on, uh, on both problems we have in Europe today, uh, continued shortcomings when it comes even to the, the functioning of the system of justice, the uh, very flawed and problematic response to the threat of terrorism, the uh, uh, response to the economic crisis with the budget proposals which really undermine the social rights for a large part of the population, um, because I think that's the the, uh, the basis for problems we have in Europe today. And I've also tried to make some reflections on how the politicians relate to those problems, 
have I been unfair? Have I been too critical? Have I looked too deep into the half-empty part of the glass? Uh, of course, there have been improvements in, in recent years, yes. We have today uh, laws which, uh, in all countries in Europe, which defend human rights. Uh, the European Convention of Human Rights is actually part of the law in every country in Europe today and uh, uh, by that also the uh, rulings of the court in Strasbourg uh, as the highest authority when it comes to interpreting the articles in the convention uh, is relevant. Um, we have also ombudsmen now in every country and different types of ombudsmen or equality bodies uh, in, in all European countries. So on the institutional side there have been uh, quite a lot of, of, of progress in, in, in recent years. But some of those uh, steps in the right direction have not really benefited uh, the more vulnerable parts of, of our societies. So uh, I, I think the problems which I've tried to identify are still there. The conclusion of that I do not think is that we should review or change uh, the basic approach that we have taken when it comes to protection of human rights with the uh, importance of the international standards, lawmaking in the countries in order to meet the requirements of the international uh, treaties, uh, setting up of uh, monitoring bodies, have a judicial system that is non-corrupt and, and protecting it protected against political interference, all that is absolutely important uh, and should not be, in my opinion, uh, questioned. But th there, are, there are other aspects which, which need to be uh, protected and, uh, and discussed. And there I've taken some uh, inspiration from Amartya Sen's book, uh, The Idea of Justice. And he uh, uses two concepts in old Sanskrit, uh, nita and nyaya. And nita he defines as uh, something related to institutions and arrangements, perhaps the, the classic human rights approach with the standards and the judicial machinery. And nyaya is more focusing on, on processes and, and results. And uh, of course my conclusion is that you need both. You, you need both nita and nyaya when, when uh, developing an, a human rights uh, discussion. But these concepts are, are, are useful because it, it makes an important distinction between formal uh, standards uh, of formal democracy, if you so want, and, and, and genuine dynamic democracy in, in, in reality. Um, There was a, a conference on human rights many years ago in Vienna, 1993, a world conference. And there the focus was partly on the lack of implementation. The standards were more or less already then there. But in the countries, the, uh, the ideas behind the articles of these conventions were not, not implemented, an implementation deficit. And one of the decisions taken by the government's meeting in, in Vienna was that one would recommend every government to establish uh, a sort of national plan for a comprehensive uh, implementation of, of human rights. Uh, and uh, it's striking that very few governments in Europe 
have adopted uh, uh, such a plan or even started working on, on, on such a plan. Uh, very few have, have done that. Those who have entered into that discussion has, had, uh, in my opinion, made some progress, in fact. It, this requires uh, a, an, an overall review of where the problems are in the, uh, in the country when it comes to human rights, when it comes to minorities, the function of the judicial system, etc., etc. Uh, so that, that would be one, one of our suggestions still, that this uh, old recommendation would be taken more seriously by, by uh, governments in, in Europe. I think there is a need to be much more serious about uh, the media and the media policy. Uh, and uh, uh, because media are so important when it comes to forming attitudes in society. Of course it's a sensitive because media are not willing to be a megaphone for any interest in society, uh, not even a human rights uh, interest. They are independent and want to be independent and that should be uh, respected. But the policy of governments in relation to media is important. And we have very serious problems when it comes to media in a number of, of European countries. Uh, there is a monopoly tendency uh, both from the state but also from big business and in some countries there is uh, an alliance between big business and leading politicians like in Italy which uh, distorts uh, the possibility of, of really genuinely free media with the diversity and possibility for different voices uh, to be heard. Another problem is that the self-regulation system which has been developed in several countries have not really worked well. And, and this is uh, a serious problem, for instance, in several of the Balkan countries, certainly in the, uh, the uh, previous communist countries. It just doesn't work well. And uh, it seems that the market forces are much stronger than uh, the uh, urge to implement the standards which have been agreed upon by media people uh, themselves. Another important instrument for further protection of human rights, of course, relates to the non-governmental organizations. It cannot be emphasized strongly enough how absolutely important the non-governmental organizations are when it comes to uh, defense of, of human rights. Um, the, the dissident movement in Russia, for instance, at the time with Sakharov, uh, and, and the other uh, activists for human rights were absolutely crucial for uh, even what happened during 1989 and the breakdown of the communist system. They are still very important. Uh, and we have copies uh, or parallels to that in, in several other European countries. And our recommendations to governments is that they should develop a constructive relationship to the non-governmental organizations, listen to them, uh, and, uh, and, and be constructive in relation to them without trying to, to take them over or, or to uh, sort of uh, use them as an instrument. They, they should be respected as, as independent. Um, the ombudsman system is important uh, but not totally independent in some countries and there there is also uh, a need to respect their integrity and their independence and uh, one should encourage governments to uh, respect them as they are and give them resources. Many of those institutions have very limited resources and this is one way of making their job more, more difficult. 
Another important matter relates to human rights education. As I've tried to illustrate here, human rights is very much a question of attitudes and, <coughs> and, and ethics. And uh, uh, the human rights education is not working well in most of the countries in Europe today, I would say. Uh, and human rights education would be both to uh, secure that in the schools, not least on, on primary and secondary level, there is an, an, uh, a competent education in uh, what human rights actually mean. There is also a need to improve the education of some of the professionals uh, who are particularly important when it comes to the defense of human rights. Uh, uh, teachers themselves, of course, police, social workers, health personnel, uh, and others who are in the front line when it comes to actual defense of human rights in their own societies. And there is quite a lot to do there in order to secure that people in these positions understand what human rights are about and the obligations that the country, even on local level, have in relation to the international uh, standards. And finally, of course, to try to find ways of informing people at large about their rights because human rights cannot really be given. It has to be understood by the individuals. And everyone in society should know how to complain where there is, when there is a need to, to uh, address the authorities with, with a complaint. That's where, of course, the ombudsmen are, are particular, particularly important. So this ends up, I'm now closing, uh, with uh, some messages to the politicians because I wanted to address the politicians when it comes to uh, all these problems. Uh, and of course I hope that they will begin to take uh, these problems more seriously, that they will take more actively their roles uh, as opinion makers and even teachers, sort of a, a leadership, that the xenophobic tendencies that we have in Europe today be counted up front by the politicians and uh, with much more energy and determination than we have seen so far. That more attention be given to the rights of minorities and, and migrants in our societies. And that social rights should be put much higher on the agenda and equality no longer be seen as a threat against economic growth and stability as is done in some of the debates nowadays. All this will uh, require political will, political will, and it also requires uh, a principled approach, principled approach to human rights, stressing that the standards are treaty-based and universal, that they are relevant regardless of culture, religion, or political system, and that they do apply, they do apply to everyone without discrimination and that they should be implemented. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for a, a, a powerful and challenging as well as uh, uh, enlightening lecture and for sharing the wealth of your experience with us. Um, we have uh, time for questions, and I know uh, people have many questions for Mr. Hammerberg, so I want to take questions in groups of three. And also, if you look around, you'll see our wonderful uh, LSE stewards who have uh, red tops on. Mm -hmm. 
and they'll come to you with a microphone, which I'll put in front of you. And if you want uh, to ask a question, please raise your hand. And uh, please wait until they're with you and have a microphone uh, in front of you before you ask your question so that everyone in the audience gets a chance to hear uh, what you have to say. And I know this can cause a short delay, but please be patient. And also, when you ask your question, can I request that you uh, state your name and your institution or organizational affili affiliation, uh, please? Thank you. Uh, also, if you, I, I know there's a range of issues that have come out from uh, Thomas Hammerberg's talk, and I know people want to make uh, comments on that as well as ask questions. Uh, if you do want to comment, that's fine, but please, no very long speeches. Uh, thank you. So who'd like to go first? All right, thanks a lot for your talk. My name is Daniela Naj. I'm a lecturer at the University of Westminster, and I teach human rights, incidentally. Um, there's a couple of issues that I, I would like to flag up that I, I think you did not mention, um, um, and I think um, that very much have to form part of the discourse. Uh, the first would be, uh, you talk about the Roma in Europe and, and, and the fact that the Roma today constitute an underclass within Europe, which, which I very strongly agree with. However, you fail to mention which uh, foreign policies have contributed to that situation. So to give you one example, if we look at Kosovo, right? I mean, Kosovo, up until the bombing in 1999, had one of the largest Roma populations in that region. Um, and, and uh, you know, arguably uh, uh, that population uh, enjoyed a higher quality of, of, of living than it does now. So, mm. so I would like to, to find out where you situate yourself in relation to, to some of the very um, destructive impacts of, of policies or doctrines such as humanitarian intervention, um, I call it bombing, um, you know, which, which have, I think, exacerbated uh, the situation of certain people within the regions of the former Yugoslavia, certainly, um, and, and, you know, why that never gets mentioned, and, and, and how can we, as, as, you know, sort of Western democracies, um, you know, uh, still continue to see ourselves as the beacons and upholders of human rights if we engage in such policies which, you know, clearly have a very, very negative impact on quite a lot of people. Uh, so that's the first question. Secondly, in relation to NGOs, I do agree with you, um, and I'm going to try and keep it as short as I can. I do agree with you that uh, NGOs play a fundamental role and a very important role in terms of raising our awareness of human rights issues. However, I also wonder whether you see, um, you know, some problematic aspects of NGOs, NGO work where NGOs are, uh, you know, increasingly siding with governments, governments that, you know, perhaps don't always have the best interests of, of the population at heart. And I'm thinking organizations such as Human Rights Watch, which, for example, again, were quite active in supporting humanitarian intervention at the time. Um, and then uh, thirdly, um, I think in relation to the media, yes, I think a lot more work and research needs to be done in terms of, of, of I think, the distorting message that the media can very okay. often play in terms of uh, again, really distorting the picture about the real human rights situation and the causes that very often lead to, to um, these very serious violations. All right, can I, uh, yeah. Thank you very oh, much. Um, I, I, there, there, there were two important questions there. Can I just take one more from here, please? Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for a, a very interesting lecture. Uh, my name's Anthony Longwa. I'm with the Centre of International uh, Studies here at uh, the LSE and also Flinders University in Australia. Um, it seems to me that in, in your discussion about the glass half full and the glass half empty uh, dimensions of it, I, I wonder if there's a sense in which human rights have been too successful for, for their own good, 
I mean, human rights are often are thought to be uh, involved with dissent and particularly protecting people against the power of the state and the power of other powerful institutions. Um, and yet, when you're looking at the, the glass half full dimension of this, what you indicate quite clearly is that the human rights movement has been very successful in uh, making itself an arm of the state uh, and of, of international organisations. Um, and indeed, with the, the post-September uh, 11 uh, uh, discourse uh, and with Iraq and so on, human rights have often been invoked as the reason why states should behave in, in ways which many of us regard as being uh, human rights abusive. Um, so I wonder if you could comment on that and also in the context of uh, how then, if, if human rights often get their grassroots support by being sort of associated with dissent or something which... Uh, many of our colleagues have been doing on the streets today. Um, how, how do you reinvigorate that sense of a grassroots politics of human rights in a way which doesn't become permanently co-opted by, uh, by the state? Thank you. Okay, Ms. Lamberg. Um, on on Kosovo, the, the, the war 99 in Kosovo was a total disaster for the Roma. They were uh, accused of cooperating or having cooperated with the Serb element, uh, the Serb administration or the Serb presence there. Uh, I don't know whether that was correct or not, but the result for them was that they were heavily repressed. Some of the houses were torched and they were, were uh, chased away. And we still have refugees all over Europe actually from Kosovo, uh, most of them today Roma who are uh, sort of trying to find uh, a no ho new home. Uh, and uh, the tendency today is uh, in Sweden, in Germany, uh, Austria and Switzerland to uh, send them back involuntarily by, by force. Uh, and the Germany, for instance, has a policy of sending back 2,500 uh, the next four years, per year, 2,500 per, per year. And uh, uh, I've been several times in Kosovo and looked at the situation there for the Roma. It's still not safe for them. There's still an extremely widespread uh, anti-Roma feeling among large part of the population. Uh, some of them at an early stage ended up in this terribly contaminated two camps in northern Mitrovica where they had uh, on that piece of land processed lead which uh, was there in the water, in the soil, and uh, um, infected the, the bodies of people there, not least the children, in, in the most disastrous manner. In fact, the, the K-4 troops first uh, uh, landed there and, and, and established a camp there, but they immediately moved away when they realized how uh, contaminated that area was. But the Roma has, have been there for, for 10 years now. And, and unfortunately, some of those ex uh, deported from, from, in particular Germany, ended up there. So this is a, a, a total disaster. Your question was about uh, the humanitarian intervention. Uh, we uh, are not very happy with the use of human rights arguments for warfare or, or, or uh, military interventions, neither in the case of Kosovo, Serbia, nor in the case of, of Iraq. Uh, the, the, um, the American administration used uh, the uh, violations by Saddam Hussein as one argument for the need to, to invade. Um, I think we in the human rights community have to be very careful about uh, supporting that type of argumentation. 
uh, also that we have to be a bit humble there. We cannot, on the basis of our experience, really foresee the consequences of military interventions, even if they are genuine uh, positive uh, thinking about trying to protect the population against the dictator, etc. Uh, so there, I, my recommendation would be to be very careful about supporting that kind of, of, of discourse. Uh, problems of the NGOs, of course there are problems. The NGOs are not similar. They are the diversity of non-governmental organizations. Some of them are in fact set up by governments or acting very closely to governments. Others are more genuinely independent. And those who tend to be the most effective ones are the more independent ones. That's, that's our experience. Uh, what we recommend governments is to try to open up channels for uh, all the non-governmental communities uh, in order to listen to their arguments and their analysis of the situation, uh, especially those who are more independent, because we, we of course recognize that non-governmental organizations are not there for their own sake. They want to influence and improve the situation, and governments and parliaments decide. So that link is is important and uh, hopefully that could be established without their independence being undermined. Okay, thank you. Uh, Hi, uh, Foster Fee from Huddersfield, West Yorkshire. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, you, you mentioned China and the, the event tomorrow in Oslo, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's commonly believed among the Chinese people and also people in Beijing that there's a parallel between for example, Google was asked to perform some sort of censorship at the beginning of this year and uh, WikiLeaks, for example, by the West to, to shut its sites. Uh, what, what, what's your view on, on the peril and also how can you convince the Chinese people, the Chinese government in Beijing to, you know, to, to perform, to, 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 to enhance uh, their human rights? Hmm. Okay, there's a question just there. Walker, um, student and um, possessor of a um, certificate from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, which I recommend to everyone. I so would um, like to ask if the. Uh, I have to apologise for my late arrival. I'm in the debate, and this question might already have been answered in this. Um, but you talk particularly about the role of human rights within European democracies, mm. and you made a contrast between the debate here and eastern parts of the world, the eastern approaches, is there an, an approach that is differed within um, other western traditions of rights debates and democracy? And if so, how might that possibly help us? I'm thinking particularly of the role of rights within American democracy mm. and how that how that differs um, in their, both in that is very much a my understanding, a 20th century debate mm. within Europe, whereas obviously in America it goes back further than this. And, and how might they differ? And what might that give us to our understanding of, of, of European human, human rights and the role? Okay, can I just take one more question right at the back? He's been waiting for a little while. I didn't quite understand. 
uh, Jack Connor, um, a master student at UCL just up the road. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the role of the European Union in promoting human rights in Europe, or at least amongst the 27 member states, especially since the, uh, the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty and the incorporation of the European Union's Charter on Fundamental uh, Freedoms and its possible or um, likely accession to the ECHR in due course. Thank you. Shall I try? Yes. Uh, starting with the last first, uh, this is not without problems, and uh, some of us in the Council of Europe feel that uh, the Lisbon Treaty is, is uh, European Convention light, that uh, uh, everything that is in the Lisbon, the, the Charter on Human Rights, or Fundamental Rights as it's called within the European Union, is actually already covered by uh, United Nations and Council of Europe standards, but somewhat rephrased in, in, this, uh, in this charter. Um, it may not be a wrong thing to repeat the basic human rights principles in various treaties, but we hope that the implementation uh, which is available through the UN and Council of Europe procedures would continue to be important for the uh, 27 member states of the Council of Europe, of the uh, European Union. And uh, we, we, uh, we hope that the tendency will not be to focus only within the European Union on, uh, on the directives and recommendations coming from Brussels, which are often very, uh, uh, often somewhat weaker when it comes to uh, the precision in the protection of human rights as compared to not only the European Convention but the case law of the European Court. In, in, in Strasbourg. So there is, there is a little bit of a, a, a problem there. And now the, uh, the discussion going on is that the European Union as such would be um, a member of the Council of Europe and also um, um, be under the jurisdiction, as not only the member states which are only the part of, of the system, but also the institutions of the European Union be uh, ruled by the European Convention and under the jurisdiction of the of the Strasbourg Court, which may change a bit the atmosphere, at least between the Commission uh, and, and the, the, the Council of Europe. But there is an ongoing discussion there. My personal fear is uh, what I first mentioned, that uh, the, the um, procedures within the European Union will begin to take over the interest of governments. Uh, we could already see some tendencies in that direction and put the uh, um, the fairly effective system within the Council of Europe in the shadow, which would be, uh, in my impression, unfortunate. China, um, yeah. there is a problem when one makes uh, this kind of comparisons uh, uh, between violations or problems in, in one country as compared to other countries or one region compared to another region. I think one should look at the, the problems as such in all, in all individual cases. And uh, the message I try to bring out is that uh, there are problems in Europe and we should confront them honestly, uh, expose the, the, the real dilemmas and, and take positions and rectify what is not in line with our principles, uh, irrespective of what's happening in China and, and in, in other parts of the world. The, the, China is an interesting example because not only the EU but also uh, Norway, uh, I think 
Britain, some other individual, Switzerland is one of them, uh, countries, have had dialogues with China on human rights. And uh, in the beginning, it was like uh, the Europeans tended to come with problems, uh, accusations or criticism against the Chinese performance when it comes to human rights. And after a while, of course, the Chinese representative learned from that and begin, began to identify problems in, in, in Europe and said, what about this? And it began to be a sort of, uh, you know, a kind of ping pong, uh, another kind of ping pong diplomacy uh, on that. Maybe that's useful and maybe that's a little bit what is happening in Geneva with this uh, UPR, uh, the Universal Periodic Review process, when the, the, there's a peer pressure between between governments, but uh, I'm not sure that that kind of comparisons uh, are, are really uh, useful. My main concern is now, when it comes to China, that uh, the uh, event in Oslo tomorrow will be a, a clear demonstration that uh, the world feel that the Nobel Committee for Once took a positive and correct decision and that we uh, support that, that decision with our, our presence there. I was glad to hear today that, that uh, Amnesty International will, will, be, will be present uh, itself there. That was a good step. Uh, yeah. Okay, I understood your question as uh, relating to the EU Charter and uh, fundamental freedoms and the Gulf and implementation. Would that be a broad... I'm sorry, would you repeat that? I understood your question as relating to... Uh, the EU Charter and fundamental freedoms and the Gulf and implementation, what that might mean in terms of uh, the future of democracies and, and implementing fundamental rights within Europe and why the variability. That sounds yeah. good. Thank you. I think I've you, you also mentioned something about the, the eastern part of Europe, which is not part of the, the European Union. And, and uh, what is clear to me is the, the length of time it takes for the previous communist countries to change, uh, not least the, the very basic system of justice, uh, the, the courts are still corrupt in those countries. The prosecutor has an enormous influence on, on the way that the cases are dealt with in the court. The police are still, still not up to standard when it comes to how they exercise their, their, their powers. There's a lot of police brutality still. And the prison conditions are, are really quite awful still, as they are in many European countries, including this country. Uh, so but but th there is a, a gap there. And uh, I thought that the reform process in Eastern Europe would go much faster than it obviously has. When it comes to disabilities, for instance, they still have the large-scale old institutions which are not friendly to, to the inmates, including the, the children which are in some of those institutions. But when it comes to democracy, uh, there is such a clear linkage between human rights and democracy. It's, uh, it's almost the same issue with, uh, on two sides. And uh, um, I think some of the human rights problems we face today, including those I, I try to define here, is uh, um, partly rooted in the fact that democracy doesn't work well in, in our societies. Uh, and I try to define the, 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 the gap that I think is there between those who really decide and the broader part of the population. The difficulties for minorities to be heard uh, in, in a real discourse with, uh, with those who, who decide. So uh, democracy is, is not, uh, you know, you have it. Uh, democracy is a gradual process and you have to 
struggle for democracy every day and on all the levels and in all, all uh, its dimensions. Thank you. We have a question just in the middle there. Hello, my name is Alan. I'm an undergraduate student at the University of East London. So my education in human rights is really only just beginning. Um, aside from all of the kerfuffle we've had about student fees in this country, the, the UK government is also beginning to the UK government is beginning to apply restrictions on the the only immigration immigrants that it can control, and that would be immigrants from outside of the EU. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us, in particular, what kind of um, issues the UK government may actually face in terms of human rights and limiting people's movements. Um, perhaps you have an opinion on that. Thank you. And there's a question just behind. If you just pass the microphone. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, there are many points to make here, really, and uh, many questions to ask. But I'll restrict myself to two main uh, points. Um, uh, the first one is, is uh, to do with the human rights as a fundamental principle. Uh, whether we view it as a fundamental principle, uh, which is universal, or to uh, see it as a variable value, if you like, uh, the result of which we've seen over the last decade almost also, uh, uh, resulted in rendition, um, torture, what, uh, what they call, what is it, um, enhanced inter interrogation technique, what they call, uh, and, and so forth and so forth. So um, I think we have to put the argument forward for the human right being a, a fundamental principle which is not restricted by time and space in any sense. Uh, the other point I would like to make is to deal with the culture and our perception of human rights. And I can tell you uh, uh, from a first-hand experience, I've just uh, come across somebody who's an acquaintance. She's from somewhere in uh, Eastern Europe, countries, which is Poland specifically. And by the way, I don't believe in uh, political correctness. And uh, I wouldn't hesitate to say she's from Poland. Uh, uh, Eastern European countries being uh, uh, racialism and racism being more, if you like, widespread than, East, than Western Europe for many reasons. Mm. Uh, she was telling me, not knowing uh, that I'm myself Arab and Muslim, that she hates or she, what she put it, don't like anything Muslim or anything Arab or anything Indian or Asian or whatever. I said, excuse me, how many have you been in touch with? None. Literally none. So what I mean, I said, look, you being from Poland, come from a country which uh, paid a heavy price 70 years ago, uh, three or four something millions uh, innocent people uh, killed, and we as a humans, we paid a heavy price 70 years ago, 70, 80 Okay, may I request appalled as we all are by this person that okay. you uh, What I'm saying um, is, can I ask you to focus the, down on the question? The culture here and the attitude that we have as a grassroots uh, we as, let's say, elite or whatever we call ourselves, we have really to uh, uh, address this issue and change people's attitudes uh, at the grassroots level. So my, my last point is, or the question actually, <laughs> a question is, the media obviously it plays a big, big role over the last hundred even years. 
because the terrorist is an Arab in Hollywood film, and this is very obvious. And it has to be a bit dark skin and uh, something wearing okay, a headdress. So uh, don't you think, Mr. Uh, Haverberg, that the media uh, play a big role and we have the really to put the finger at this uh, uh, huge machine which is controlled by a big corporation, by the way, who control our minds and brains and they invade our kitchen and sitting room every single day. So don't you think Okay, we've, uh, we've, we've understood the question, has, sir. Thank you very much for, we have, for that. We have to target the media <laughs> I did a request no long speeches, please. And so. to promote uh, equality and anti-Semitism and anti-racism. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. We applaud uh, uh, the sentiments uh, behind there. There's just one question from the uh, back, please. Um, thank you for the talk. Uh, I'm a MSc student um, in human rights at LSE. Um, my question is, to what extent does political and economic isolation or sanctions hinder or, en or enhance human rights situations of, the co of a country that the sanctions are being imposed on? Should I repeat? If you could say that again, please. Um, to what extent does political or economic um, isolation of a country or sanctions hinder or en or enhance human rights situation of that particular that country. That sounds like an essay question, I see. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. It's on the effectiveness of sanctions, thank you. Um, Mr. Hammerberg. Uh, immigration in Europe, uh, I think it's very important that we at long last begin to harmonize uh, the migration and asylum procedure policies within Europe, at least within the European Union, because now we are in a situation where it's not fully harmonized. There have been some steps in the right direction, uh, with some problems, in fact. As I mentioned, the, the uh, directive on, on, on detention is, is, is uh, much too restrictive when it comes to the number of, oh, there are too many months allowed for detention when it comes to those who are to be expelled. But on the whole, we, we welcome and support the idea that there should be a harmonized policy because what you have is a competition sort of downwards uh, uh, where some governments introduce new res restrictions with the hope that that would send a signal to countries from where people come in order for them to avoid that particular country because that is not a very friendly country to, to migrants. And this kind of competition we have to avoid. So harmonization but with a basic humorized principle part of the, the new European policy. Uh, I think that's the, the real um, aim for, for the policy for the moment in Europe. But there is another problem that is that Europe is broader than the European Union and I think it's very important that Turkey, for instance, is a part of this new uh, um, policy which, uh, for instance, the Commissioner Cecilia Malmström is trying to to, uh, to sell to governments in Europe with a lot of resistance uh, from, from some of the governments. Um, that's basically what, what I have to say on, on, 
on immigration. When it comes to the, the problem of xenophobia and uh, your example from Poland, there was a very interesting survey made in Germany recently. Um, the president made a, an interesting uh, speech where he said that Islam is part of our culture and Muslims are welcome in our country and there was a strong reaction against it. Just before that there was a poll made when attitudes to Muslims were, were measured and it turned out that first of all the overall message was very negative. Uh, it was about whether there should be restrictions on exercise of, of um, religion when it comes to Muslims and uh, the, the answer was yes, there should be uh, restrictions when it comes to them, when it comes to freedom of religion. But more interesting was the fact that the parts of uh, Germany where there were almost no migrants, no Muslims present, the attitude was much more uh, negative towards the Muslims than, than in other parts. And I think that, that it's a message there. Uh, which we have to reflect upon, uh, and I think your example illustrated the same, the same tendency. You asked whether the media is a problem, and of course it is a problem, but it's not a, a, an easy problem. Uh, I think uh, when it comes to human rights, media is, uh, is a friend and a supporter of human rights in many instances, but it's also a, a problem and sometimes undermining the human rights. We have a situation where quality press with good investigative journalism being there uh, important also for the human rights, which, uh, and these, these journals are sold much less than the tabloid uh, newspapers, which tend, in some cases at least, to promote prejudices and, and xenophobia or very simplistic arguments which can be used by, by uh, xenophobic groups in the society. Uh, we have a problem of uh, monopoly tendencies, as I said, both business and, and state interference or, or, or ownership of the media. We have a problem in several countries when it comes to fairness in the distribution of frequencies, both when it comes to radio and, and television, which also is, is, is a major problem when it comes to the, the democratic um, exercise uh, by the media in the, in the public debate. And as I said, the self-regulation system isn't really working. In, in many countries today, which is also a problem and invites state intervention when it comes to uh, the media performance. Uh, one of the positions we take is that uh, libel or, or defamation should not be criminalized. Uh, and, and if we could just achieve that, we would uh, improve the situation for quite a number of active journalists, not least for, for human rights. And when it comes to civil uh, cases, uh, we, of course, would object to uh, very high fines to be sentenced by, uh, decided by the courts, which in reality uh, makes some papers, for instance, in some other countries uh, bankrupt because they can't pay uh, such high fines because someone in the paper has criti criticized the government. So even there, there are problems. But uh, media definitely are a, a major uh, field, both when it comes to protecting the freedom of expression securing that there is a diversity of voices being heard in society uh, and, and of course to avoid that uh, there is an incitement to uh, negative uh, actions against minorities in the society which we also see. Um, There's a question on the effectiveness of sanctions. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the general conclusions people have drawn and myself uh, is that we have to be very careful about uh, sanctions that uh, they uh, very often do not produce the results. They tend to penalize the poor part of the population and the broader part of the population. Uh, 
while those in, uh, in decision-making situation, uh, they tend to avoid, they tend to manage to not to be hurt by economic uh, sanctions at all. Uh, one has tried to design uh, sanctions which would really focus on the leadership, Mugabe in Zimbabwe, to take one example, to uh, uh, try to avoid that they have a chance to travel, that their bank accounts would be frozen and that kind of actions. But frankly, there have been rather little success when it comes to these focused um, actions against the, the very responsible people in those countries where human rights are grossly uh, violated. So basically, I think this is an area for review and uh, we have to note the failures that we have uh, done here and in some cases really put people at large in, in great difficulties because of, of that kind of dis uh, decision without really helping the human rights situation. Okay, thank you. Uh, these, we have three more questions and these may have to be our last three questions. This is a question from the front. Margot Light from the London School of Economics. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, you spoke about the success of right-wing parties in a number of countries um, and it's also clear that many governments in their immigration policies are actually responding to popular pressure as much as anything. Uh, does this mean that the people in European democracies are becoming less open to human rights themselves? Has there been a general shift in opinion? And if so, what can be done about it? There's a question, uh, the first question from the top tier. Hello, my name is Michal Dvořák. I'm from the Czech Republic. And uh, I would like to stress one thing. I think your presentation was great, but it was just one-sided. The second side of it is that the security concerns are as important, and I think maybe more important, than uh, the human rights. And uh, human rights are now much misused by uh, certain uh, groups that, uh, for example, uh, anarchists, anti-globalists, uh, Palestinian terrorists, and things like that, yeah. So I think that European Union should primarily, primarily rationalize the human rights concept, not to uh, give firepower to those who, are, who, in fact, want to destroy our civilization. Thank you. Okay, and there's a third question, just... Hi, Maggie Byrne. I just wanted to ask, since we're in London and the UK, and you said that all European countries have integrated the European Convention into domestic legislation, what do you think about the rolling back, at least in the public discourse, in the UK around the Human Rights Act and, uh, and mm -hmm. replacing it with something better, the British mm -hmm. Bill of Rights, which a lot of people have suspicions about? Thanks. Thank you. Hmm. Attitudes towards uh, migrants, uh, it is shown that in the gallops and the, the opinion polls that the, the opinions basically all over Europe is going to a more restrictive negative direction. Uh, wh why is that? Um, I, th I think unemployment is a major part of it and we have had a fairly high level of unemployment in many European countries now, between 8 and 10 percent in, in most of the countries, which is high. Uh, I think the, uh, the, uh, the atmosphere which was created after 9-11 is, is part of it. Uh, and, uh, many people see uh, the, the migrants coming as 
coming from Middle East, and many are coming from the Middle East or, or Pakistan, uh, Iran, etc. And I, I think many people make a connection between the two. But I think that, in essence, uh, we're talking about fear among people for their own future, and they feel a sort of competition. I, I, but as I tried to say there uh, when I talked, I think the politicians have not stood up and explained, taking a bit of a leadership role and even teacher role to explain that we actually need immigration, at least to some extent, in order to protect our welfare in the future, that this is a normal development. We will have migration whether we want it or not. Do we want a situation where uh, we have such restrictive rules and so much policing uh, uh, along our borders that many people die? Uh, in order to still wanting to come, and they continue to come in spite of the many boats which have uh, sunk in the Mediterranean. There was a, a, an interesting report that came out uh, recently about the border between Turkey and, and, and Greece, the land and Frontex issued, Frontex in the EU, published a report saying that they had had great success in the work because there had been a reduction of 40% during the, uh, this year uh, of, of people trying to cross. Uh, and then further down in the press release, it was said, as, as in passing, that, well, 42 people also died when they tried to cross the, the, the border. Uh, and and uh, th this illustrates a desperate situation uh, which is there. And th there really is a need to see this in a more global context and uh, begin to discuss how the rich Europe, still rich Europe, handles the situation where they, there will be continued uh, stream of people trying to seek a future in our continent. And, and the, the xenophobic tendency in the present debate, without a vision, without looking forward uh, and, and seeing it as, as a global issue, I think is, is uh, quite disappointing. Uh, but I, I think it's sort of primitive fear and lack of, of, of leadership and guidance and assurance from those who are elected that this is normal, uh, we can cope with it, it's not a disaster. The, the, all the European Union countries together last year received less asylum seekers than one country in Africa, South Africa. Less for the whole of EU than, than came to South Africa. And then when you go to, to Syria, Pakistan, those countries, there are many more refugees, of course, than, than, than any European country. So there is a need of some proportions there uh, as well. About um, security concerns and, and terrorism, the point that I try to make is that, in fact, it is more effective if you want to combat terrorism to stay within the limits of the law and use only methods which are um, in line with human rights standards. And I think uh, the approach of the Bush administration, where they actually allowed torture and they allowed uh, other human rights violations like detention without uh, due process, etc., actually helped the terrorists and, and was not very effective. Uh, and torture, of course, uh, in general, perhaps not in all cases, but in general, is an ineffective method of obtaining of obtaining facts. Again, I think the politicians have failed to, 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 to clarify uh, the distinctions here and to demonstrate that they actually believe in and are going to protect human rights in the absolutely important uh, combat against terrorism because terrorists also violate the basic values that we try to defend when we talk about human rights. You're right. 
uh, Human Rights Act. Where, where is Maggie Byrne? There. Um, oh, I'm worried about the discussion here. Because if you are going to uh, disconnect from the European system with the uh, jurisdiction of the, uh, the court in Strasbourg, you will start here a process that could go completely out of hand because other governments, not least those who are uh, subject of many applications, Russia, Turkey, Romania, Italy, and Ukraine, those are the five uh, leading when it comes to the number of applications in, in the court today, they will also consider why should we uh, be under the jurisdiction of this supranational uh, judicial institution if, if not even the United Kingdom could uh, play the game. So I think that uh, if you start unraveling this, uh, you will take a great responsibility when it comes to the whole European system of, of human rights protection. And frankly, I think that most of the, there haven't been so many, but there have been some cases when it comes to uh, human rights violations in this country. I think they have been a help to the, uh, the, the situation here and helped the discussion. The last ruling that even those who are in prison should have the right to vote is a system all over Europe. I don't know any other country where it's not uh, the case that even prisoners have the right to vote. Is it such a compromise for this country to allow people who have been, for various reasons, sentenced to be in prison for some time, that they would also have the human value of being allowed to take part in the democratic process? Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to allow just one brief final question, please, for this person who's been waiting for a while. Hi, my name is Rosa. I work for HUK and all the people's organization in the UK. Um, and I think what my question is related to the economic, social, and cultural rights uh, debate. Obviously, with the current climate, current economic climate, this is going to have a big impact on vulnerable groups, as you well pointed out. Mm. And especially, I mean, obviously, me working for an older people's organisation, that's going to have a really bad impact on older people. Um, so I was wondering whether um, this will be a priority area of work of the Office of the Commissioner. At some point, given the current climate and the, all the spending cuts within all the European countries. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. It has to be a priority, but I would insist that there is a very clear link between the social rights and the, the classic uh, freedom of expression, functioning judicial system, etc. Because the, the most vulnerable groups also suffer from not having a voice to not really have a chance in the, in many cases, in the, in the system of justice. So the package as such is uh, important. But um, the, the first is to try to uh, take a discussion with those who would like to make a distinction between those two types of rights and say that the, the classic freedom of expression uh, and civil and political rights in general are the real human rights and the rest are a question of ambitions uh, and resources. Uh, I, I think one has to, to continue that discussion. It's not, that debate is not won in Europe still and definitely not in the United States. Uh, but I, I think the, the situation will force us to, uh, to give more attention to precisely the, the social rights recognizing that the dismantling of the general uh, welfare system um, and uh, thinking even about the schools 
uh, if the resources are going down when it comes to schools, when uh, the costs go up for ordinary people, these measures will, uh, this is a consequence of the austerity budgets, uh, will always, always uh, hit the, the poor people most. Uh, they need the general welfare system more than anyone else. And if that is dismantled, it's uh, against them. Thank you, and thank you for your uh, excellent uh, and stimulating questions. Just before I conclude, can I just remind you about some important events organized by the Centre uh, next term, Lent term. We've got a very exciting uh, Lent term planned with events on uh, political Islam and human rights and international human rights law, representations of atrocity and suffering. We have Mary Robinson on uh, climate change and human rights. Now, just after this event, uh, you're invited to join us in the atrium gallery, which is to the left uh, as you exit the old theatre, for a drink and a reception for Mr. Hammerberg. And this is also uh, this will also be your last chance to see the centre's exhibition, uh, Cambodia: Reflections on the Khmer Rouge, which closes tomorrow, which is also in the atrium. But I would just like to end by very much thanking Thomas Hammerberg for his really brilliant and challenging presentation. This